Every once in a while, it's not often and it's been a while, but I've had someone come up to me and say, you know, Pastor, I, I just didn't get anything about, out of that service, or uh, I didn't get anything out of that song this morning. And there's been a few, few times I've been tempted. There's been a couple times where I actually said, uh, well, you know, that's okay because it wasn't for you. We don't gather to worship for ourselves. We gather to worship the one who is deserving of our worship. And he has a name. His name is Jesus. So when we come together, if our focus is on what can I get out of this worship service, my prayer will be for you that you leave disappointed because it's not what you can get. It's what we bring to the altar in worship to a true and living God. And if you come with that spirit and with that heart, you will leave here excited and inspired and leave here filled with something. There was a time when Susan and I were attending a, a small church and, and I remember uh, hearing some of the, the messages from the pastor and, and his doctrinal leanings were, were different than mine. And, and I, you know, sometimes I'd ask that question, Lord, why do you have me here? And the Lord was always answering because I have something for you. Every Sunday I got up and I came to the worship service. I said, Lord, what do you have for me today? And the Lord always spoke because he, if we will come and say, Lord, I'm open. I want to worship you. I want to praise you. I want it to be about you, not about me. Even whether we like the, the songs or not, the Lord will speak if we come with, with, with a heart that's open to receive from him and to worship him. But if we come with the attitude, Lord, I, I want to have it my way. I, I want to do things my way. I want to hear things my way. I want to see things my way. We'll, we will leave oftentimes disappointed. In fact, I'd suggest to you that, that there's a, one of the sicknesses in our nation, one of the sicknesses in our churches is this sense of, of self that we have to have it our way. That we want things our way. When we do that, what we're saying is, when we gather to worship, it's about me. And I've struggled a little bit even over the years with this idea of seeker-sensitive churches or seeker-sensitive services. I think we ought to be savior-sensitive in our worship. I think he ought to be the focal point. He ought to be who we come to worship. And when we worship Christ, who is the only one deserving of our worship, when we worship him, he will accomplish his purpose in his church. So you can gather a crowd in a lot of different ways. Throw some dirt on the floor of AT&T Stadium and bring some big monster trucks with big wheels and big engines and you'll get a crowd, right? Take a little football about that big. And, and go put it out in the middle of the field and invite people from Oklahoma and Texas to come fight over that football and you will gather a crowd. You'll see a crowd far more excited to worship their teams, even their mascots, than they ever are to worship Jesus, the one who is deserving of our worship. And when we, when we perpetuate that mentality in in what we do up here, we teach those who are growing up in the church, we teach, we, we're making disciples who want to follow their own desires. 
instead of submitting their will and their desires to the will and desires of a holy God who we ought to worship. I've struggled especially with some of my friends who, who have attended churches who are professing Bible-believing Baptist churches who have decided to minimize the use of God's word in worship. I even heard the quote from one pastor saying, people just don't want to hear God's word read out loud in worship anymore, so, so we're just not going to do that. I'm, we'll, we'll put one or two of the verses up on the screen as I preach, but we're not going to read it. I praise God that, that, that we're in a church family. We have a, a worship minister who believes that God's word ought to be central to our worship. That we stand in the pulpit and we proclaim his word because worship is not about what we desire. It's about bowing our hearts to a holy God who is deserving of our worship. One of the, the, the seven essentials to real revival, not fake revival, not drawing crowds just for the sake of getting people in a building, of real God-ordained revival is Christ-exalting worship. Our worship focuses on Jesus and not on self. It focuses on truth and not on feelings. It focuses on what's, what God says and not on what the world says. So I want you to walk with me. We see this in the prayer that I've already preached from this prayer in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. Now, I've preached from this in the context of prayer, but I want us to see something in here about their worship, and we're actually going to spend the first two major points are going to come directly out of this text, and then we're going to pivot and look at one of the early Christian hymns. Uh, and Matthew actually read it last week as a part of worship. Uh, read with me, Acts 4, 23. The scripture here says it's speaking about Peter and John, who'd been in prison, they'd been threatened with their lives. They were told, if you don't, if you don't quit talking about Jesus, we're going to kill you. They came back and they told the church that, and that's where this picks up. After they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together to God. I want to pause here for just a moment because if there's ever a time that you would see a group of people gathered together, their lives have just been threatened and told, if you ever speak in Jesus' name again, we're going to imprison you and we're going to kill you. If there's ever a time that the church you might think has a right to come with a selfish motive, it would be at this time. They would come to God, and you, you know, you'll see this, we'll do this. When, when things get tough, we'll come to God and say, oh God... We're just trying to do what's right, and they're going to kill us. Oh, God, protect us. Oh, Lord, take care of us. Lord, watch out for our families. Lord, please help us. That is not what the church does. They came together to God, raised their voices to God, and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. There's no greater example of simple praise than right there. They're not thanking God for his deliverance. They're not thanking God for sending his son. They're just simply coming and saying, you're it. You're God. And that's what worship does. Worship is us getting on our knees physically or, or figuratively, bowing our hearts and saying, you're the one in charge. You're the one who made the heavens. 
You're the one who made the earth. You're the one who made the seas. And you're the one who made everything in them. Because you are God. I can't do what you did. When Jonah, or, no, Jonah, when uh, Job got in trouble and things started going sideways for him, I mean, really sideways, they went bad. Uh, the struggle that he had was he, he started, you know, God, how'd you let this happen? And, and God listened to Job, Job's friends complain, and then he listened to Job complain for a while. And finally, after Job got done complaining, God said, hey, let me talk. Where were you when I created the seas and told them to stop at the shore? Where were you when I created the hippopotamus? You got that one figured out, Job? Job, where were you when I did that? And God, God got to let him have it. And Job was reminded, oh, that's right. You're God, and I'm not. That's what true Christ-exalting worship does. We come to this place and we remember that he's God, and we're not. A couple weeks ago, I stood uh, close to the headwaters of the Snake River in the, in the uh, right below the Grand Tetons on a Sunday morning when y'all were worshiping back here, and just stood there for a moment and just sang silently or a little, you know, I didn't want too many people to hear me because they go running, but, uh, but actually sang out loud very quietly, majesty, worship his majesty. He's the one who created all of this. He's God. And there's a rec there has to be a recognition that he's God. So let me just read it. I, I, this, this text is so meaningful to me. Their lives are on the line and all they want to do is worship. Master, you're the one who made the heaven, the earth, the seas, and everything in them. You said through your Holy Spirit by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot futile things? The kings of earth take their stand and the rulers assemble them together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. You notice who the focus is in this whole prayer? It's not me, us, mine. It's you, Lord, you. To do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. Now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders and perform through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Notice how all of this prayer is wrapped up in, in a humble cry out and a lifting up of their voices to the one true living God. I want to walk through four simple points here. Some of them are drawn directly from the text, but some of them kind of from other uh, texts. The, the main thing is here, notice that worship, their, their humble worship here focuses on God. It focuses on him. It doesn't focus on themselves at any point. It focuses on the character of God, who he is. It celebrates and lifts up and praises the character of God, who God is. Second, it celebrates the acts of God, what he does. When we come together and worship, we ought to praise him Worship him, focus on him for who he is and what he does. To, to, to look into, into the heavens and, and to just humbly recognize that, that he's the Lord. 
it, it will change us. And when we worship God as God, when we make him the focal point of our worship instead of ourselves, it puts things in correct perspective. When we recognize that he's God, it helps me remember that I'm not, right? And it helps me remain humble. It helps me be encouraged. Because honestly, if things are left up to me, I tend to make a mess out of them. But if I recognize that this is his church, this is his world, and I'm just part of his kingdom, I can trust him a whole lot more than I can myself. So it's important for us to focus on God, the character of God, the acts of God. And let me notice what they do here in verse 25 and 26. They focus on the word of God. They look back to their Bibles. They look back to their, the, the, what we would call the Old Testament. That was their only testament. They look back and they incorporate, incorporate the word of God in their prayer and in their worship. I think that that ought to be a pretty good example for us. The word of God ought to be central to our worship. The word of God ought to be focused on in our worship. Not philosophy. Not human reasoning. Not even science, whether it agrees with us or doesn't agree with us. You know, whatever you find out there. Honestly, I I haven't found much science that doesn't agree with the word of God. Unless it's junk science. God's word ought to be central in our worship. It ought to be what we read. It ought to be what we quote. It ought to be what we preach. And it ought to be what we sing. One of the things that I've, I've mentioned before, and, and I will continue to give him a, a pat on the back for this, when I met with Matthew a year and a half ago, when he first you know, was, was making that decision that God had called him to be a worship minister and not, and, and not just a tech guy, he said the one thing that was most important to him was that everything that we sing be theologically correct, that it be according to God's word. It didn't have to, he didn't care if it was a thousand years old or five minutes old. If it honored God's word and was rooted in God's word and was true. Because I'll be honest with you, there's a lot of wonderful sounding, good feeling Christian music that's out there on the radios that people are making a lot of money singing that sounds great and it's uplifting, but it's not true to the word of God. Now, if you want to sing that as part of your your uplifting, joy-filled experience as a person, that's great. That's between you. I'll be honest, I listen to country music and not all of it is uplifting and according to God's word. Okay, I'm just gonna be honest with that. But I've learned to be more and more cautious and I'm certainly not gonna worship to it. And I'm not gonna call it worship music unless it is true according to the word of God. So be careful and cautious. The word of God ought to be central to everything that we do in worship. From our preaching to our singing, to all of it. There's nothing wrong with standing in the pulpit and reading aloud the word of the one true holy God. Because my words will disappear and they will fade into eternity. His word won't. His word will last and his word will bring fruit. And then finally, you see in the midst of this church, the spirit of God. 
the, the Holy Spirit was, had filled the church in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit was filling his people. And at the end of this prayer, as they worshiped God in truth, as they worshiped God through the, the reading of his word and the proclamation of his word, as they worshiped God for what he had done and who he was, the Spirit of God moved on those people and the Spirit of God challenged them. The whole place was shaken they were filled with the Holy Spirit there in verse 31 that we didn't read. And they went out and they began to, with more boldness, proclaim the word of God. When we focus on God, and in particular, we're going to narrow it down here in just a little bit, but when we focus on him, Christ-exalting worship will focus on him and not on meeting the needs of man. Now, let me say that again. Christ-exalting worship will focus on the Lord and lifting him up and praising him, not on meeting my needs. Now, I believe, and I see it in Scripture, and I believe this is a truism, that when we humbly worship God, he fulfills his promise to meet the needs of his people. When, hear that again, when we focus on him and when we exalt him and we humble ourselves before him and we worship the one true God, he then, he'll meet the needs of his people. But if we come looking to exalt ourselves, we miss the, we miss the whole point. We miss what worship is about. Worship is not about me. It's about God. Second, what you see here, worship submits our will to God's will. This is not explicit in the text, but it is clearly implicit in the text, and I've already, I've already pointed that out. It elevates God's kingdom purposes. And what I mean by that, it, it, that it is implicit in this text, is they came and worshiped God, and they, the, the, the one prayer request that they really extended in this was not for protection, it was for more boldness. Why? Because they weren't concerned with their kingdom. They were concerned with God's kingdom. They weren't concerned with building their world. They were concerned with elevating the kingdom of God. And, and you see that in the, the model prayer that Jesus gives us. Our prayer ought to include, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. Not on earth, but like it is in heaven. Lord, your kingdom is the one that we're looking to. Christ exalting worship is about the kingdom of God. It's not about our kingdom. Christ's exalting worship, therefore, focuses on the eternal and not on the temporal. Everything that we see, everything that, that you can touch, taste, feel, hear, right here in, the, in, this, in, in this room, is temporary. One of these days, this building is going to fall down. It doesn't matter how well built the Roman Colosseum was, it eventually fell down. Everything that, that's created by man, all of our kingdoms eventually crumble. They're temporary. God's kingdom is eternal. We spend way too much time and way too much money and way too much energy focused on holding together and trying to hold up our stuff. Stuff that's not going to last. 
Let me give you one example of this, and, and please, y'all know my heart, and, and I, so I know that you're not gonna, gonna take this wrong. But when we have prayer meetings in most Baptist churches, most of my life, I've always had some sort of prayer meeting in, in the churches that I've been in for the last 30 years. When we pray, our list of prayer requests tends to focus more on keeping God's saints out of heaven than getting the lost sinners whom he loves into heaven. What I mean by that is we'll pray for everybody in the church's ailment, that the Lord protect them, heal them, take care of them, provide for them, that everything's taken care of for their temporal stuff. And we'll have lost neighbors sitting next to us and we're not praying for their soul. Our stuff, even these bodies, is temporary. Our soul is eternal. True Christ-exalting worship is going to focus on what's eternal, not on what's temporary. If we'll turn our eyes toward God, turn our eyes toward heaven, and worship the eternal, true, everlasting God, we'll be reminded that a whole lot of stuff we worry about on the day-to-day just isn't quite as important as we tend to make it out to be. God's purposes, God's plan, God's kingdom is a whole lot bigger and it's a whole lot more important if for no other reason because it's going to last forever. And then finally, turn with me. You can start turning there if you have your Bibles to Philippians 2, 6 through 11. This is a familiar passage. Matthew likes to read it as a part of worship. Uh, last week wasn't the first time I've heard him read it. In the, in the New Testament, there are three extended passages that tend to be identified by scholars as early Christian hymns. They believe that in one way or another, these were a part of regular worship. They either quoted them like poetry or they sang them like hymns. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 is one of those. Colossians chapter 1 uh, is another one. I believe that's actually the one that Matthew read last week. And then John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's a third of the extended Christian hymns. There's other short pieces that uh, folks believe, uh, scholars believe, are parts of Christian liturgy or, or hymnology uh, in the early church. But these are the three extended ones. And, and, and there's, a common, there's some common threads among them, and, and Philippians 2, 6 through 11 really represents this pretty well. And so I wanted to read it and then talk about the, the, the last three important points. So read with me. I'll begin in verse five, but you, you know this passage. It says, adopt this attitude that, as that of Christ Jesus, or adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, exalting in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow. You notice something about that hymn? It wasn't about, oh Lord, I need you to come fix my problems. Oh Lord, make me feel good today. It was about Jesus. 
And it celebrated the important aspects of our faith, the most important central core truths of our Christian faith are celebrated in that Christian hymn. And you see those, those same core issues celebrated in all three of those Christian hymns. And, and, and there's other stuff in here too. Uh, you know, th- this is a beautiful passage to, screen, to preach in and of itself. I just, uh, let, me, let me identify three things here that ought to be at the core of all of our worship. The first one is this. We remember his sacrifice. We remember the cross. I'm going to illustrate this very simply. The Lord has also given us two, uh, I've lost the word, in the church, he's, he's given us two things he requires us to do, sacrifice, or sacraments, they're not really sacraments because we're not Catholic, but uh, Lord's Supper and baptism. Okay, there you go. The Lord's given us two, the Lord's Supper and baptism, both of those Things do the same. They, they, they do these three things. They have these three elements in it. First of all, they cause us to remember his sacrifice on the cross. Jesus bled and died on the cross. And when he gave up his life on the cross for you and me as the perfect sacrifice, dying for all of our sin, that became the, the pivot point for eternity. It became the pivot point for human history. All human history is centered around that moment that Jesus died and the following days when he rose again. We, we look back to the cross as central, the core central ideology, the core central truth to our faith. If Jesus had not died and rose again, I would have no confidence that I have any hope for eternity because I'm a sinner but Jesus died and shed his blood for my sin. And we see in this, in this hymn, it expounding on that truth. He, though he existed in the form of God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be exploited. Another, another translation is there's something to be grasped. Jesus is God. Jesus was God. Even when he walked on this earth, he was God. But he released that, that authority, he released that, that position so that he could walk among us. He was still God, but instead he emptied himself, verse 7 says. And he took on the form of a servant and took on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. I'm reminded this weekend that God is who he says he is. God is a God who cares about us. God is a God who can move mountains. God is a God who can, who can accomplish his purposes. God is a God who answers prayer. We serve and worship an incredible, mighty God. And for some reason that only can be understood with his wisdom, he chose to send his son to step out of the glories of the eternal bliss of heaven where he had never known anything but light and love to step into a world of darkness and of sin and of hatred even to be born and, and grow up like we do so that he could identify with us and then to die a cruel 
brutal, tormenting, sacrificial death on a cruel Roman cross. The God of eternity, who had never known anything of pain and sorrow, did that for us. When we worship, every time we gather to worship, we ought to remember the cross. If it were not for the cross, we would be without hope. Jesus is an anchor for our souls, and that anchor is grounded on Calvary. We will rise again because Jesus shed his blood on the cross for our sins. Worship ought to always focus on the cross. Now, let me pause there for just a second because I think that's another place where we fail as a church in our culture a lot of times. I've actually heard a pastor say, I don't like to focus on the cross and on the blood and all of those hard things because you know, people have a lot of, enough difficult things going on in their lives. I just want to focus on the happy stuff, the stuff that makes people feel good. Folks, we don't have a resurrection if we don't have the cross. Our, our sin, your sin and my sin, because I sinned against God, my sin condemned me to eternal separation from God. It condemned me to hell. My sin, what I did, did that. Regardless of any inherited sin and whatever you believe about that, it, it, it doesn't matter because I sinned against God. And, and one sin disqualified me from stepping into the presence of a holy God in heaven. But Jesus died on the cross in my place. Isaiah says he, he, he took my sin on his back when he carried the cross. Without the cross, I don't have any hope. Without the cross, I die as a sinner separated from God with no hope of a future. We can't forget the cross. We, we remember, we even celebrate the cross. Not in some morbid way, but we celebrate the cross because we know that it's at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light. Christ shed his blood for me on the cross. Second, Christ's exalting worship connects us to the essentials of our faith because in Christ we celebrate his resurrection. In Christ we are reminded that he rose again so that God highly exalted him and gave him a name that was above every name. Christ did not stay in the grave. Christ rose again. And when we come to worship and we exalt Jesus, we're not thinking about my little troubles and my little pain and my financial problems. We're thinking about when, we, when we're able to truly focus on Jesus, we're remembering that he died for me and we're celebrating that he rose again. He came up out of the grave, victorious over death, victorious over sin, victorious over anything that this world could throw at him. And they threw it all at him. Satan threw every temptation that he could throw at him. And the world threw everything they could. Satan tried to lock him down in the grave and he couldn't win that battle because Jesus is God. He is the Lord of Lord and, kings of, and King of Kings. He is life, in him is life. He told us in John 14, six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Life. Well, if he is life, you can't kill it. 
You can't take life from the one who is life. Satan thought he might could, but he missed the boat because he did not understand that Jesus truly is life. Life is in him. It is everything that that, that was created, was created in him and by him and through him and for him, we read in Colossians chapter one. Jesus is life. And so the resurrection was just a natural consequence of his death. You couldn't keep him in the grave. He's never truly dead. He was, his body was sacrificed on the cross. His temporal body was sacrificed on the cross, but Christ rose again. The good news with him is he took that body with him because he can even bring the dead things back to life. And you know what? In the end, one of these days when we rise, he's gonna bring us a body. We're not just going to be spirits floating around in eternity forever. I'm not going to get into all of my, my, my theology about what happens in heaven, but I believe scripture is pretty clear to me. When we take our last breath on earth, the body goes in the grave, our spirit goes to be with the Lord. Paul said for me to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So my spirit never dies. My spirit's always alive with him. In Christ, I'm alive. But there's coming another day. And this is the third thing that Christ's exalting worship does. Christ's exalting worship remembers and looks forward to his return. Because Jesus is coming back. Now, he may come for my spirit. He may come for my spirit, my soul, before he returns to to bring the consummation of the world as he has created it, the consummation of time in God's kingdom uh, order. And he may come back for me sooner than that. And he may get, and probably for some of y'all, he's gonna come back before he comes back for me, okay? Uh, Just because I'm 52 and some of y'all are closer to heaven than I am, (laughs) right? But that's okay. And that's not what I'm talking about here. The, the, Lord, the, the Lord's already come for my daughter and, and she's with him, right? Her spirit's with him. But you know what Paul said? Paul said, not only do I look forward to the day that when I take the last breath on this earth, I, I take my, my first breath in heaven, I, to be absent from bodies, to be present from the Lord. But in 2 Corinthians chapter five, he said, there's even coming a better day than that. Because one of these days, Jesus who rose again physically is gonna return physically. And when he descends from heaven, he's going to do it with a shout and the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are together and alive will be caught up with him in the air. So Christ exalting worship remembers his sacrifice on the cross. We, we, we celebrate the resurrection, but we look forward to that it's going to even get better. One of these days, he's coming back and he's gonna set this world in order and he's gonna set our lives in order and we're gonna have a physical existence again in some way and and I don't understand exactly how that works out. Paul tells us that it's gonna be a body that's perfectly suited for our new soul in 2 Corinthians chapter 15, but it's gonna be a glorious, wonderful time. Every time I stand at a graveside when I'm preaching a funeral, I, I think about, man, wouldn't it be awesome if today's the day? that Jesus comes back. Wouldn't it be cool to be standing in the middle of of Greenwood Cemetery with thousands of graves around you when Jesus enters the atmosphere? Because the scripture says that the dead in Christ will rise first. So those graves are gonna burst open and they're gonna, what was planted in the ground, so to speak, that body that has decayed and died is gonna be resurrected and it's gonna be restored and it's gonna be a perfect body then that'll never get sick, that'll never get old. You know, one of my questions is, Lord, can I be 16 again? 
if you're going to bring, you're going to give me a new body. Don't give me the body of the 50 year old that I am now. Give me the body of, you know, when I was a little bit younger and a little bit thinner. Uh, I I don't know how that works because you know what? In eternity, age won't matter. God has a perfect plan. And when people start talking to me about some of those things in in our eschatology and they're they're asking, pastor, how is that going to work out? I say, you know what? Scripture gives us a lot of clues. I think there's some things that we can be certain about. I'm absolutely certain, absolutely certain Jesus is coming back. I'm absolutely certain that he's, he's, he's winning. And I'm absolutely certain that, that my, my daughter, my dad, and my brother are, are spiritually in his presence today because of their faith in him, not because they were good, but because they put their trust in Christ's goodness. I, but I'm absolutely certain that one of these days he's gonna come back and we're gonna be, have, have these physical bodies. You know, I've, I've told people that my granddad, when, when he passed away, of course, I was young in the faith, and, and I'd heard all these stories about how, you know, when you die, you get to go to heaven, and you play a harp, and you sit on a cloud, and, and I'm thinking, you know, after about 5,000 years of that, granddad's going to get bored. Now, he loved to squirrel hunt. I don't know if you're going to get squirrel hunt in heaven, but I do know that the God who created us, who filled us with desires and hopes and dreams, and the God, God who created our soul through his son has a purpose and a plan for us that we can't even imagine. It's better than what we're gonna see here and we can trust him. You know how I can trust him? There's two issues that help me settle whether or not I can trust him or not. He's big enough to do what he says he's gonna do. And I'm reminded of that every time that I truly worship him. Okay? He's big enough to do all that he says he's gonna do and every time that I truly worship him and make worship about him, I'm reminded of how big he is. And I kind of asked that question that the psalmist asked at that point. Lord, as big and awesome and mighty as you are, why do you even care about us little specks of dirt on this earth? The second reason that I trust him, and I'm reminded of this, when I exalt Christ in worship, is because he loves me. If you ever question it, and when we go through hard times in life, certainly we can question God's love. We do. But if you ever question whether or not he loves you, remember the cross. Remember the cross. Because God demonstrated, he put on display his love for us. That when, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Does God love me? Look to Jesus on the cross and he'll answer that question for you. Christ exalting worship connects us to these three core essentials of our faith. We see it in the resurrection, I mean, in, in, in baptism, and we see it in the Lord's Supper, too. These three core essentials that Jesus died on the cross, he rose again, and he's coming back. When we exalt Christ in worship, we're changed. Our attitude has changed, our focus has changed. It's no longer about me, what I want, what I can get out of this world. It's about him. If we're ever going to see true revival in our own hearts, we're going to quit focusing as much on all the little things. Certainly God says to bring our prayer requests before him. 
We're going to continue to do that, but I'm going to do it because he's God and his will matters and his kingdom matters. And when we exalt him in worship, focus on what Christ has done in our worship, it'll transform our understanding, our view of what's going on around us. Would you stand with me? There may be somebody here today that in the three core essentials of our faith, you've just heard the gospel and you're reminded that that Jesus did die for your sin. He did, he was risen, victorious over the grave, and he's coming back. And, and you're sitting there worried because if Jesus came back today, you know that you wouldn't be on the right side of the cross. You, you know that if Jesus were returned today, you'd be left behind because you have never publicly put your faith and trust in Christ as your savior. I plead with you, if that's where you are today, come and talk to Kevin or I. We have even some decision counselors that can help you learn more about what it means to put your faith and trust in Christ. But church, church and truly worship is for the church. I didn't get into that a lot today, but worship is for God's people. Church, if you'd have to confess and say, you know what, I've been making too much of worship about me. I've been making too much of life about me and not being focused on the eternal things of God. I plead with you, just simply bring that to the altar. Bring it to the Lord and ask him to redirect you. Repent of it. Confess. Lord, I've been worried about this or this or this in my life. Lord, let me focus on you, Jesus. Repent. Put your focus back on him and let's determine that we're going to exalt Jesus in our worship.